day. Thank you so much. That is a promise that cannot be canceled. Amen? Um, that the resurrected king is still in the resurrecting business, um, and he is resurrecting lives this morning all around the world. Thousands and thousands of people will give their life to Jesus today because of the work and the ministry of his church. He started 2,000 years ago, and he continues to change lives through this same simple message about a resurrected Savior. Um, you know, the COVID panic has uh, canceled a lot of things, right? Um, but it couldn't cancel, and it will never cancel, the power of God, the presence of God, and the Spirit of God's ability and desire to gather together the people of God on days like today. Amen? If you're watching and you've been worshiping along with us, um, you're a testament to God's ability to overcome whatever obstacles are put in His way. I, I know it might feel awkward um, to sing and shout in your homes to a screen, right? I, I know it might be different, um, but maybe it shouldn't be so awkward, and maybe it shouldn't be so odd. Maybe in this season more than anything... God is trying to decentralize worship away from just these buildings to wherever we are, right? So we wouldn't, and we shouldn't just sing when the mood is right, when the service is good, right? We should and we can sing and worship all the time, right? You have a voice, and we all sing our favorite songs in our cars, right? Come on, you can sing and shout and praise God wherever you are. And shame on the church if it's ever made us think that we can only sing if a good musician leads us or pumps us up or if the set list is our style or if we're feeling it. This day reminds us that we should always be in the mood to worship, right? We always have a reason to worship. Anything that exalts Jesus should be our style. In God's spirit, he's a better worship leader than any preacher or any singer, right? He is better and able to fill hearts no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing or what we're going through because he is powerful he brings hope, and He brings peace, and we lean on that promise today. We love our churches, and we love our worship teams, and we love our good services, but right now, we're relying even more on the Spirit of God to do what we can't do, to get to wherever we are and to lift our spirits up, to get to wherever you are and lift your spirits up. You know, listen, you know, COVID-19 isn't the first attempt by the enemy to cancel worship services, and it won't be the last. Uh, listen, I do this every week, and, and he, the, the enemy is working every Sunday morning. He's up bright and early, and he tries to throw wrenches into the plans that we work hard to make sure they're going to work out well, right? The enemy works hard to put bad spirits into hearts. He works hard to drag people down, to get people out of the mood. Listen, he tries to cancel the power and presence and spirit of God every single week. But guess what? We don't have to give that kind of authority to him. And yes, right now we might be a bit compromised in what usually is the greatest worship service of the year. It's a little different, right? But we don't have to believe his lies or we don't have to listen to his deception. Remember, he tried to cancel the very first Easter and that blew up in his face. That knocked hell's doors down. That broke hell's chains and toppled its prison walls. We can have confidence and we can know and proclaim the resurrection power and promise of Jesus cannot and never will be canceled. A lot of stuff's getting canceled and has been canceled, but that's one thing that will never be canceled. You know, our goal with this service, and every service really, but this service especially, is to make known loud and clear to all that are watching just how true and how dependable that statement is. 
I know we're living in a season where we covet facts and updates and knowledge. We want to know that there's a plan, right, that's going to get us through to the other side. We want to know that somebody's leading us and giving us the right information. But that's true for every season, isn't it? In this season, we're facing an enemy that cannot be seen, but we can definitely feel his power, can't we? We can feel the power of this pandemic. But this is something we should know. This isn't the first invisible enemy that our world has faced. And here's what makes Easter's promises so encouraging and so uplifting and so definite. 2,000 years ago, God did a work that would cancel out the threats and the powers of the enemy. We are forever reminded that God's promises and God's powers are greater. That what God did this weekend, 2,000 years ago, He canceled out every threat and power the enemy could ever raise against you. We are reminded today that God's promises and God's powers are greater. How did this happen, though? Is it really believable? And is it relevant, relative to us all these years later? Well, thankfully, we have eyewitnesses who saw the original events, recorded what happened for us. They write so that we would believe that Jesus was, in fact, sent from God, was, in fact, God in flesh, and that he did, in fact, bridge the gap between heaven and earth, between God and all people. And I believe in light of our current challenges, this is honestly, this has never been more relative and more helpful. No matter what you're facing today, no matter what you're dealing with today, the promise of this day, the promise of Easter offers you hope. Now, I'm not undermining your pain. I'm not undermining your stress or your situation or your circumstances. But here's what I know today can do for you. Whether it makes you forget about what you're facing or removes you from the challenges that you're facing, I can promise you this, that it can redefine what you're facing. It can change your outlook and can change your perspective and show you there's a reason for what you're facing. And it will not be the end of you, but it is the beginning of something spectacular. The reason why I'm so confident, and I feel so confident in saying that, because this day took an institution. This day took an operation that had been in business since the beginning of time, and it redefined it. This day took an operation that was the perennial enemy and thorn in the side of every tribe, every tongue, and every generation. This day, 2,000 years ago, took on an operation that had been in business since the beginning of time and changed everything about it. This day took something that had shared a meaning across every culture and every generation and changed it at its core. Now this operation that I talk about, this enemy that I'm referring to, is death. Death had never failed to complete its job since it got started. It reached and affected 100% of the people who had ever lived, and it was 100% efficient at reaching and retaining everybody it ever impacted. That's something we all can agree on, right? From the beginning of time until this day in 30 AD, everyone faced death at some point in their life, and no matter the fight you put up, everybody lost the battle against death. And everyone who lost this battle, everyone over whom death brought its shadows, stayed dead. Death was a business that was always booming. Death could not be stopped. Death could not be overcome. Death was inevitable, and death was all-powerful. A lot of people claim to have power or wisdom to cheat or prevent or overcome death, 
But every prophet, priest, king, every wizard, magi, or shaman, every wannabe, might be, could be, Messiah from beyond, all of them talked a big game, but in the end, none of them were bigger, stronger, or greater than death. Death was the great equalizer. Rich, poor, wise, famous, foolish, unknown. No matter one's culture or one's generation, death had your number and death didn't have to count to three. Death ruled and reigned. On Friday, the 14th of Nisan, death claimed another victim. Of course, wasn't the only victim that it claimed that day, but the case for that day, it was most proud maybe of this death and it made a lot of noise about this victory over a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was yet another self-proclaimed Messiah who had amassed a following. He performed signs and wonders. He said all kind of outlandish things. He said he was from heaven. He said he was equal with God. He said he was God in flesh. He said he was the light of the world. He came to save the world from its greatest enemy. And everybody agreed what that enemy or who that enemy was. It was death. Greater than any empire or disease, death worked through people, through nature. Death worked through the unexplainable, and no matter what, death always came, and it always claimed, and it always kept. But Jesus claimed that he was more powerful than death. He called himself the life from heaven. He had proven to have the ability to heal people, to raise others from dire conditions, but on Friday afternoon... In 30 A.D., Jesus died. And alas, what hope there was that he was actually a Savior from God was gone. He could save others, but he couldn't save himself. And that was a deal-breaker. Because the world needed someone who was greater than death. Someone who could beat it. Someone who could cancel it. But there's more to the story, and the enemy doesn't want you to know the rest of the story. The enemy wants to hide the rest of the story from you, but he can't erase this story from history that God's Word testifies to us about. You see, the night before Jesus died, Jesus went to a garden to pray, his own private sanctuary. Peter, James, and John went with him, and they heard his prayer, and Peter would go on to tell Mark... And Mark would go on to write down word for word what Jesus prayed that night in that garden before he died. And you wonder, why is this important? Because what Jesus said in that garden, the prayer he prayed in that garden, clues us in on the fact that Jesus' death was not a defeat. But his death was going to be a victory for God against death. His death was not going to be another win for the enemy, but the beginning of the end for the enemy. If you've got a Bible, I would love for you to open up to Mark chapter 14 with me this morning. Mark 14, verse number 32 through 42 is the record of Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he died, this is what the Bible tells us was going on. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther, and he fell on his face. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, or Daddy, 
Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went and prayed and spoke the same words. Father, all things are possible for you, but nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. And he returned. He found them asleep yet again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came the third time. He went a little farther and prayed again, not mine, but thine be done. And he found them and he said, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer or the enemy is at hand. Now, we know the rest of the story. The enemy shows up with a mob of people, right? Judas and the chief priests and the religious leaders have clubs and uh, torches and pitchforks, right? They're coming to try to trap Jesus. They think this is a win for the enemy, but Jesus knew the rest of the story. You see, God had a plan. Say that with me. If you're watching from home, say that with me. God had a plan. He always has a plan. But he had a definite plan to save the world for this day. God had a plan to cancel out the enemy's power over all of creation and all that the fall had brought on the world. And chiefly, the enemy's power, the enemy's uh, way of, of lording over us and dominating us is through sin, shame, and of course, death. Now we all know these things very well. Sin is that thing in us that causes us to do the wrong thing. Not just what God says is wrong, even if you don't know or don't care what God says is right or wrong, there's something in you that feels guilty sometimes, isn't there? There's something in you that, that admits, I didn't do the right thing on that occasion, or I didn't do enough on that occasion. We aren't always satisfied with our own decisions. There's something in us that is aware that we sin. We break our own rules, much less somebody else's rules. And because of sin, we feel shame. Shame is that sense of failure that we all have. You know, sometimes others might laugh at our failures, but we don't laugh, do we? That embarrassment, that disappointment we have in ourselves that we see in others, shame is that notion in us that says, I have fallen short. If there is a standard, I've missed the mark. If there is a high mark, I haven't reached it. In fact, and if you believe the Bible, you understand what those feelings are from and why you have those feelings, but maybe you don't know. But the Bible says and, and captures this idea of sin and shame like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as in there is a glorious standard that everybody comes short of. Everybody falls short of. That feeling you have of shame that disappointment you have, that failure you feel sometimes, that, that, that overwhelming sense of defeat and loss, that's a result of the enemy. That's a result of a fall that we all have experienced as people. But sin and shame are just symptoms of the real enemy. The real enemy is death. Sin and shame are forces that try to prematurely rob us of life. They condemn us and remind us that death is unavoidable 
See, sin breaks us and shame burdens us and death will bury us. Jesus had proven to be free from sin and free from shame. He had proven to have authority over the powers that we are under. And what he was about to do on the cross was going to confront those powers that take over us and have control over us. You see, whereas we are filled with sin and shame and death, Jesus is filled and was filled with grace, favor, and eternal life. Grace that gives him the ability to do the right thing. Favor that is approval from God that never feels disappointed or fallen. And life that cannot be defeated. See, God wants those to be forces in your soul. God wants those to be in your heart. God wants to replace sin, shame, and death with grace, favor, and life. That can be a transaction He can make today. You can make that transaction today. You can replace sin, shame, and death's dominance over you with grace, favor, and eternal life. You see, that's why Jesus came. Jesus wanted to do more than just show off His nature. He wanted to share it with us. Isn't that good news? And if you ever feel like, I just don't know if I'm ever going to get to God, Jesus wants to get you there. He wants to share with you what you cannot get for yourself. And here's why the events of Good Friday are so important, and maybe you've never thought about this or had it explained to you. But before we could share in Jesus' nature, He had to share in ours. See, our nature that is broken, our nature that is burdened, our nature that suffers, that struggles, that has fallen, you see... Here we see the love of Jesus, don't we? Here we see the extent that God wanted to redeem and save us, the measure He went to to show His love and work for us. Jesus came to reverse the curse that was over all of humanity, to replace sin, shame, and death with grace, favor, and life. The curse is reversed through Jesus. You think about this. Why are we fallen? Maybe you've got a different opinion or a different idea, but Christians believe, the Bible teaches, we're fallen because Adam, the first man, rebelled against God. Adam reached for a fruit that wasn't meant for him, a nature that wasn't meant for him. Adam took of the tree of knowledge of good and evil instead of resting under God's rule, instead of trusting in God to lead God and deliver him through whatever he was going to face, Adam broke out and wanted control of his own life. God gave him that option, and Adam chose poorly. See, the story of humanity continues in Adam's stead, right? Continues in Adam's path. We don't want to be led or guided or ruled. We want to rule ourselves. We want autonomy. We want independence. And what good does that ever do for us? It's only ever brought us tears and pain because we are creatures. We are created. We cannot rule ourselves. We are made to follow and belong to God. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is our Father. And we do best when we're in His arms, in His house, as His children. Only in Him do we ever find peace and fulfillment. But there's something in us that says there's a better way, but it never leads to a better life. You see, Adam brought all of us under the curse of sin, under shame, and under death. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says to us, Just as sin came into the world through one man, death through that sin, death spread to all people, and all have sinned. 
Jesus came to reverse this curse that infected the entire human race. That Adam's sin caused all of us to fall. But how did he do this? We see the beginning of that reversal in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, you see Adam reach for a fruit that he wasn't meant to eat, and in the garden, Jesus received a poison that he didn't have to drink. This cup that was in front of him, that is the sin of all the world. That's the shame of all of us. That is the death that we are all destined to suffer under, right? Jesus said, Father, I don't want to drink this cup. I don't have to drink this cup. This cup isn't my fault. This cup isn't for me. But Jesus received this poison. He received this cup. He accepted this cup for us. You see, Adam reached for a nature that was higher than his. But Jesus submitted to a nature that was lower than his. He lowered himself to a status and a level that he didn't have to. But you see, this was all a part of God's plan and all a part of God's love. In heaven, no doubt, God watched the result of Adam's curse for years and he saw the future hopes and dreams being canceled over and over again. He saw lives being destroyed, sin, shame, and death ruling from Adam forward. Humans born in Adam's image. After the fall, everyone went the way of Adam, straying, disobeying, falling. But once again, God had a plan. God had a plan. He would send a new Adam. He would send a new kind of man. He wouldn't just make another man out of the earth clay. He would send a new man out of heaven's spirit, made from heaven's spirit. He would wrap his own words in flesh, his own nature incarnated as a man. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, came to do one thing. Reverse Adam's curse. Undo Adam's fall. But how would he do that? Just like Adam, Jesus had a choice. And that choice would be very difficult to make. You see, Adam chose to rebel and curse all of people, but Jesus would have to choose to submit and be cursed for all of people. He would have to share in the curse, suffer under the curse to release us from it. To pay a penalty that we all owed but could not pay. To break the curse, to break the chains, to cancel our debt. You see in this Mark text, we see Jesus return to the scene of the crime. It was in a garden that Adam rejected God's will and condemned everyone. And in another garden, Jesus accepts God's will and chooses to save everyone. But whereas Adam reached for powers he didn't have, Jesus would let go of powers that he did have. Look again with me at verse number 35. Jesus feeling the pressure of what he's about to suffer. I love this phrase, he went a little farther. He didn't have to, but he did. He went a little farther, fell on the ground, and prayed if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And we know that Jesus had access to God's power. He was God in flesh. He could do anything he wanted to do. He could snap his fingers and change destinies. 
Jesus had at his fingertips the power to do whatever he wanted to do, to change what was about to happen, to bring angels to destroy the armies that were coming with Judas, to save himself from this hour. But in this moment, he prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Your will that wants to save and love and help people. God, not mine, but yours. My flesh doesn't want to let go of this power. My flesh doesn't want to suffer. My flesh doesn't want to bleed. But I want to do what you want me to do. Who would ever have the power to do whatever they wanted but lay that power down to do whatever God wanted instead? What kind of person would do that? Who would ever have the ability to see the future but instead of walking away from a trap, they would walk into the trap? Do you hear this? He went a little farther. He fell on his face and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, move this cup from me. But nevertheless, not mine, but your will be done. He knew he had all the power in the world, all the power in heaven. He knew he could do whatever he wanted. He knew he was from God. He was going back to God. But in this moment, he lays that power down. And he takes up a cross. Isn't that incredible? Especially when you contrast Adam with every one of us, right? What would we do given that opportunity? I know what I would do, right? Jesus was the only one that could fix the problem. Paul writes in Philippians, reflecting on this transaction, this conversation. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Though he was God in a body, though he was God in a flesh, he chose to not use his power for himself, to hold on to it for himself. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? Death. Even death on a cross. Why would he do this? Because Jesus always goes a little farther than anybody else has to. He always goes a little farther than anybody else is willing to go. He always goes a little farther. Doesn't he? He went a little farther, a lot farther than anyone would ever be willing to go. And why would he do this? Because God so loved the world. God so loves you and me and every single person that we've ever been eyeball to eyeball with. God so loves them. Jesus had made a name for himself by going a little farther. Whereas religion lectured people on how to be holy, Jesus made people feel whole. Law reminded people of their sin and their captivity to it. Jesus made people forget about their sin and freed people from their sin. Everyone who was certain that he was sent from God because there was no explanation for the signs and wonders he could do. No one had ever spoken with authority and gave people such confidence that they were with God. All throughout his ministry, he told his disciples that his ministry was but a preview of a new reality. He was bringing into the world. But for this to come, he would have to go a little farther than anyone dreamed a Messiah would go. Everyone was convinced that Jesus was Messiah because he entered the room. He always brought God's presence with him. They couldn't explain it, but they certainly felt it. 
Jesus had come so that everyone, all of us, even today, could experience and connect with God. For everyone to be reconciled to God, to be filled with the spirit of life, including you. For sin to be overpowered by grace, shame overwhelmed by favor, and death swallowed up by life. But for us to have these new realities, this would require him going a little farther than anybody expected or anticipated. Going a little farther than even he was comfortable with. Jesus went a little farther than any of us could go, would be willing to go, would ever imagine to go. He didn't just associate himself with us. He didn't just accept us. He stepped into our shoes. He welcomed on himself all of our sin and all of our shame. I want to show you some scriptures that capture what Jesus would do for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sins so that we might receive His righteous standard and nature. He took our sin. He became a living sacrifice for your sin. Isaiah the prophet saw this day in the future. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by who? By God. Afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What kind of love is this? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God saw us walking away. And what did he do? He took our sin before we even asked and laid it on Jesus to break the power of sin and shame. All the offenses that we've ever committed all the sin ever committed by anybody all the rebellious acts of pride selfishness oppression and injustice from every white lie to every shed blood jesus suffered as both sinned against and sinner he suffered like us and he suffered for us he was filled with sorrow like us and he was filled with shame like us on the cross, Jesus drank every last drop of the poison that causes us so much pain and so much sorrow, so much agony, and so much shame. By going to the cross, Jesus canceled out sin and shame once and for all. If you flip over to Mark 15, the story goes like this. Mark 15, verse number 24. When they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. It was the third hour, and they crucified him. The inscription of his accusations was written above, the king of the Jews. And with him they also crucified two robbers, one on the right, one on the left. The scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. Jesus was counted as one of us. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you destroyed the temple. You would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. 
Likewise, the chief priests, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said he could save others, but he could not save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. But when the darkness, when the sixth hour had come, the darkness over the whole land came until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know why he was forsaken, don't we? He was put in a vulnerable, compromised place so we could be rescued from ours. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He was crucified so our sin and shame could be canceled. Colossians 2 says it like this. You who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, unclean, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses and sins. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you wonder, can your sin be forgiven? It's already been forgiven. The enemy lords over you with guilt and shame. He does not have that authority anymore. Verse 15 tells us, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them into open shame, triumphing over them. Your sin and your shame, it's gone. The enemy doesn't want you to know the whole story. He wants you to think that Jesus lost, but Jesus didn't lose anything that day. Jesus defeated the enemy's fangs and poison and venom. Your sin and your shame was washed away. The enemy wants you to think that Jesus died like everybody else dies, but that's not the end of the story. Chapter 16 goes on to tell us that the next day after the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. They didn't expect to see it rolled away. And they entered the tomb. They saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed because this wasn't what they were expected. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Go and tell the disciples that he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Just as he said to you. Jesus didn't just disarm and cancel our sin and our shame. He defeated death. Acts 2.24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death swallowed the wrong man on Good Friday because Jesus was stronger and more powerful than death. And when Jesus rose from the grave, the grave lost its power to keep anybody inside. You see, the powers and promise of Jesus' work on the cross isn't that just sin and shame are canceled. Death has been canceled. Death 
was created by Adam's fall, but death was canceled by Christ's resurrection. You see how the resurrection is bigger than just a day and a dime? It's as big and monumental as Adam's fall in the opposite way. See, Adam's fall swept all over creation in the same way Christ's resurrection sweeps over all the creation. Death, Adam's fall made everybody destined to die, but Christ's resurrection gives everybody an opportunity to live forever. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by one man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all and can all be made alive. Easter changes everything. It changes the nature of our universe. We go from sinners to saints, lost to found, empty to filled, dead to alive. It reverses the order of creation back to the way it was always meant to be. One day the entire planet's going to be restored. But that's not before God gives all people an opportunity to be saved. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your heart, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. Some of us, we're still living under the curse, under the fall. But we've got good news for you today. Sin has been canceled. Shame can be canceled because death has been canceled. Your sin can be forgiven. You can be delivered. Your shame can be redefined and redeemed. Because death has been canceled. Yes, there are still graves, and yes, life still grow weary. But Easter redefined what death means. It's not the end anymore. It's just the beginning. Christians, our hope isn't just a better life on this side, but it's a better kingdom beyond. Every time we fall and get knocked down, even if we reach the end of our earthly days, Easter reminds us that we're just getting started. We're forgiven of our sins, freed from our shame. We will rise again no matter what knocks us down, be it trouble, sickness, or even death. Though we fall asleep, we will wake up just as Jesus did, not three days later, but instantly in the presence of God. Jesus' resurrection shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. He told them, on one occasion, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? You can experience God's resurrection power right now and that'll take you into eternity, into the family of God. Have you ever trusted Jesus as your Savior? Sin does not have to control you anymore. Shame does not have to embarrass you. Death doesn't have to scare you. Because Jesus took your sin and He bore your shame on a cross and then He buried them and He rose again with new life for all who believe. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Jesus started His ministry by saying that God's kingdom was coming near. Listen, entering God's kingdom has nothing to do with time and place, but it has everything to do with your faith. It's not a place that you go, but grace you can receive. The fount of heaven, the love of Christ that can overflow in your heart. Grace that flows like a river that can wash over us. 
You can receive that grace today. You can receive God's favor today. You don't have to be defined by sin or shame anymore. You can be redeemed. You can be redefined. You can be reborn. You can be resurrected. Our motto here at Risen Church may sound a bit brash, but it's the hope that we have as Christians and that you can have as well. Christ has risen. So have we, and so can you. If you're watching and you want to experience His resurrection power for the first time or for another time, if you want to be saved or you just want to be renewed by this promise, you can receive His power today. You can trust His promises today. Your sin must bow through His grace. What sin did to you, grace will take you in a new direction. Your shame will bow through His favor. You can rest knowing that you're not defined by what you've done, but by what Christ has done. He can replace death and its minions, sin and shame, with eternal life and give you grace and favor from God. Grace that guides you and favor that defines you. Grace that says you can be different and favor that says you are different. You're a child of God. Nobody can take that away from you. If you're watching and you want to ask God for this power today, if you want to trust His power today, for the first time, or maybe you just want to have a new, fresh experience with God, I'd like to lead you in prayer. Now, this prayer does not make you a Christian, or this prayer does not do anything for you other than what your heart wants it to do. I'd like to lead you in this prayer, and if you pray this with your heart, and you pray this with your, all of your strength and soul and mind, I believe that God in heaven is going to look down, and God's going to say, I'm sending my life, I'm sending my son, I'm sending salvation to their heart. I'm reviving and renewing them today. If you're watching, would you pray with me? The prayer should be there. Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe your grace is greater than my sin. Your favor can free me from my shame. Your life can resurrect me from any grave. Jesus, forgive me, deliver me, save me, and keep me close forever. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, you're saved and you're in God's family forever. If you prayed that prayer seeking renewal or a fresh experience with God, you've been revived and made new once again. I'd like to ask everybody to join us as we sing one last song, a song of thanksgiving. A song that says thank you to our Lord and our Savior, our risen King, Jesus Christ.